0: I have had just a few very interesting days over the last few days. I'm gonna tell you about them because I had some experiences that really caused me to um, think in a more clear way about things that I have understood or thought I understood for a long time. It's very exciting to me that, uh, that this is a lifelong process, this business of conditioning the mind to kindness or conditioning the mind to seeing clearly which is two ways of uh, saying, practicing to have one's heart open uh, and also to have one's mind as alert and clear as it can be. Uh, Sometimes we do meditative uh, practices like wishing for ourselves. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? And that's really what we want to do all the time. We want to be awake and, and be able to say, this is it. And uh, it's like this. And uh, the Buddha taught that uh, the uh, impulse to say, to once we say this is it, and seeing clearly, we would see clearly that everyone on some level is just like us. And that we, we go around thinking, no, not me. I'm different. I'm better. I'm this. I'm that. We have all the opinions about other people. The opinions are startling, and they're all divisive. Uh, uh, We talk about really hoping to have diversity, but really to have a a mind that's diverse enough to be able to say it's like this. And now what should I do for the well-being of all beings? But not just some beings and not just other, not excluding beings, but all beings. So one of the things that, so the last few days, I'm going to tell you about it. We'll sit for a little bit just to settle down in a minute. But uh, just this morning, I asked Carlita to put up on the screen a particular quote. I called my friend James yesterday, and I said, James, there was a quote that I heard you say. I've known James since 1977, and we have been orbiting around together, and being on retreats together and teaching retreats together. We are good old buddies. And I called him yesterday and I said, there was a quote that you used to say all the time. And uh, it had to do with people who cling on to views. And uh, I can't find that quote. I looked in the Dhammapada, there's, and James wrote right back. And he said this, he said, it's a quote from the, from, uh, the Sutta Nipata, the collected works of the Buddha are collected in various sutta sermons. And this is in the Sutta Nipata, and it says, one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The notions don't exist. For one who is freed from views, there are no ties. And this is the line that I love. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about the world, annoying people. I think that, I mean, I don't know what, how to say it in Polly. But I just think that's so dear. They wander about the world, annoying people. Uh, actually, one of the a follow up from that is another uh, uh, another quote from a venerable source it is from the first faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, and I'm going to read it off this pencil because once upon a time I had two dozen pencils made that say, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. The Third Zen Patriarch Faith Verses. So you too could look up the Faith Verses of the Third Zen Patriarch. It's a kind of a long, it's not long. You can read it out loud in three minutes, probably. It's a very famous uh, teaching of the Third Zen Patriarch. Talking about not having views. This is good. This is bad. These are the people I like. These are the people I don't like. This is the truth that I'm going to defend, and this is um, this is what I esp- this is what I espouse, and this is what I'm mad about. And I uh, I sent away to a pencil company where they'll write anything that you want on it, like Hotel Claremont or whatever you want to have as a reminder around. So I sent away to one of those things. And this is my one remaining one. And actually, as I'm telling you this, I'm thinking uh, desire is arising. I'm gonna go back online and see if I can find some more. Maybe I'll get it to say something else, but to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Oh, there, good, it's in the chat. You think that it's so hard to not have opinions, because they, when we have opinions, they integrate us, themselves into us uh, as if they're truths, and then you can't see out of it. So that you really cannot see the other person's point of view without opinions about the kind of person that that person must be to have that point of view. It's a very interesting kind of thing to think about. And really, that's what I want to think about and talk about with you today. First of all, most of all, because uh, two days ago I got to go uh, up to a Vahyagiri Monastery, which is a Theravada Monastery uh, in Northern California up in Sonoma County. It's complicated to get to, but I and three friends went there because uh, a particular teacher, uh, a man who lives in Europe now, was uh, was there for a few days and getting the news that he was going to be there. I've known him for a long time. He's two years older than I am. Uh, he is the, the most high up teacher in the Thai forest tradition, although he is not by. Uh, by birth, Ty. Uh so I'll tell you a little bit about that in a little bit, uh, which is very interesting to me. He was born in uh, San Diego, I'm pretty sure. I've forgotten, but I think he was born in San, Di- in San Diego, two years older than I am. Um, well, I'll tell you now, because I would say half a sentence. Um, and uh, he graduated from college. Um, I'm not sure, a couple of years went by. He was a school teacher. uh, And he went to Europe because there was a time in his life where his circumstances had changed. And he said, you know, I I really want to think about what do I want to do with my life. And it was a time when people were beginning to go to uh, Asia, particularly to Thailand or Burma or India to find a spiritual teacher. And he said, I'm just, you know, I'm just looking around and did not have uh, a, a thought that I, I just as a, was at a time in my life when I needed to have a new path and uh, go in a new direction. So I was there and I was in Thailand and I visited various monasteries. And I'm remembering this from hearing it first from him years ago. And he went to Ajahn Chah's monastery which is an Ajahn Ajan Ajahn means like bishop or higher person in the lineage. So if uh, you could be a novice and then you're a bhikkhu, which means a monk, and uh, then if you've been long enough, you become an Ajahn. you you're, just it has to do with how long you have been in this path. And that you're uh, a venerable teacher means that amongst them you are uh, regarded as in charge. Anyway, he said I went to Ajahn Chah's monastery, and I thought I'd just stay there a little bit, and I stayed there my whole life. I just I liked it there. So I th- I thought I and he said I took robes, I ordained, and I thought I'll just ordain for a year. And I stayed for my whole life because I liked it. And uh, yeah, I've known him a long time and I have not had many discussions about what exactly did you mean when you said you liked it. But I have an idea of what he might've meant because I see him and uh, I saw him in, in, in the company of 10 other monks and uh, Ajans and uh, recently become Bhikkhus monks. And spent uh, spent a day and listened to him teaching, and somehow I came away so um, picked up by the idea that people could really transform their minds to places of ease. May all beings be at ease. Think about all the words that we use for awakened and enlightened and. Uh, A mind at ease that's not having a problem with life is a mind that sees all the possibilities that could happen now and sees what's happening now as a result of all the things that happened forever and ever, and is not having a problem with what's happening. Really, really says that this moment is the only moment it could be. It could be terrible. And it doesn't and, and sees also that things will change doesn't see necessarily that they're going to change for the better, but they'll change. This is what's happening now and what can I do? That's the question that comes up. Anyway, I'll tell you more about what he taught and uh, what I thought about in a little bit. But I particularly thought I would uh, lead a meditation that really focused on the for uh, sublime states for four Brahma Viharas today. Uh, because what I really learned, which is by the way, what I'm teaching, what I'm learning these days is I, I'm not focusing at all on how was that meditation, oh, it was great, it was lovely, it was serene, it was uh, whatever it was, it was sublime. I think about what did I learn? And I really think that what I learned is that if the mind is sufficiently trained that the world can do what it does and the mind is not unmoved by it, but it's not confused by it. It's able to say this is what's happening and what should I do now. And there's a very big difference. It's not indifferent at all. Not indifferent. Not unmoved by it. But I think we should sit a little bit first. So find yourself a
1: comfortable place, comfortable way.
0: If your eyes are still open, then look at everybody else. Just as a say of for a first sense of. We're all here together, and when you're ready, if you want to, close your eyes. The first thing I do when I close my eyes is I just do nothing. And I I say to myself, what's happening right now? And the window next to me is open. So there's a breeze coming in. It's still cool this early in the morning. I feel that.
1: And it's pleasant.
0: I'll invite you to feel around you, wherever you are. Is it warm or cool? Is there a breeze? You know that all because your skin is always telling you. Your body is telling you. The parts of you that are sticking out of your clothes are telling you.
1: Is your situation pleasant, or neutral, or unpleasant?
0: I think later on today, Uh, we'll all explore how important it is to be aware of, is what's arising pleasant or unpleasant? Did I fall asleep and miss it? It's not because it's a better meditation when it's pleasant or it's something that's... um, Uh, An unpleasant feeling is undesirable. An unpleasant feeling is an unpleasant feeling. And it's important to know, because if we've decided to be sitting here for a while together, the response to an unpleasant feeling is,
1: oh,
0: that's unpleasant.
1: I wish it were pleasant. May it be pleasant soon. Just really meet the moment fully and meet it as a friend. Everything is acceptable. This is what's happening,
0: it's temporal, it doesn't need to be problematic. Feeling your mind, feel your body from the top of it to the bottom. Is it quiet? Is it energetic? Does it have energy running around in it Did you feel? Or is it quite tranquil? How is it?
1: Whatever comes up, if it's pleasant, say to yourself, that's good. Relax.
0: Unpleasant,
1: say, that's okay.
0: Relax. If you name it, with the intention of relaxing, which means don't pick it up and elaborate it. Don't worry about it. Everything is temperable, temporal. Everything passes. Sometimes I say that to myself, if I'm sitting and perhaps a memory of something that happened earlier this morning or some difficulty in my personal life right now, I say to myself, relax.
1: It's going to be okay."
0: It's the kind of thing that you would say to a frightened child. Things happen that they don't expect. And their built-in neurology says, uh-oh, what do I do? And the first thing you can do is relax. Say, what should I do now? doesn't mean no response. It means appropriate
1: response. Sometimes the best response is you have to do something right now. Mm
0: I just remembered many, many years ago saying to my teacher Sharon Salzberg in an interview that um, trying to be a very good meditator, I said sometimes very pleasant feelings arise in my mind and body as I'm sitting, but I I don't hold on to them. I don't do anything with them. She said, well, "Why not?" And I have been trying to be such a good student and you're not supposed to attach. And she said, that's not attached. Notice them. And then
1: wish them for other people. Whoa, I feel good.
0: I wish other people felt good. May all beings feel good. That doesn't disturb the mind or confuse it. It notices what's happening and it does appropriate action. Learn from it It is a moment of pleasantness and really the mind unagitated. What I learn from it is that peace is possible in this mind, in this body, in this world,
1: in this moment. Even if the peaceful feelings don't last long, they're here now. When the mind is untroubled by what's arising, it's really free. self notice.
0: With each passing breath, whenever the mind is untroubled, if it's untroubled. the breath slows down, the body relaxes, There's not so much um, of a movement towards, well, now let's think about something else. We could abide this way. It's a word that occurs to me sometimes when I'm sitting. I think, okay, now what? Now abide.
1: Breaths come and go, and
0: thoughts come and go. And if they don't startle the mind into any kind of planning or thinking or stories or opinions, you can't just abide peacefully. This would be an example of equanimity. Or this would be a place of mind-abiding. Equanimity doesn't mean that it doesn't register or that it doesn't have feelings. It means it rests in a certain kind of baseline steadiness, alert, present, poised to respond with goodwill, What with compassion?
1: What with joy?
0: But we'll think a little bit about meta goodwill for the whole world. I was thinking in the whole world, there are a certain amount of people that we know or know intimately. The people that are in our family, the people that are our friends or our kin or our social group. I think the people that we know with some affect, probably there are a hundred of them. I don't know. I've sometimes thought about making a list of how many people I know or know about. Not so many when you think about seven billion people on the earth. The two groups of people I know And the people I don't know, people I don't know, is much bigger. To the degree that your body feels and your mind feels at ease right now, and you wish out of natural concern and care of yourself, and indeed love for yourself, May this feeling of peacefulness continue to pervade my mind and my body. May I be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Just becoming my favorite loving-kindness line, may I be peaceful and happy
1: and come to the end of suffering.
0: I invite you to try it for yourself. Be happy, peaceful, and happy. Come to the end of suffering. You can do it on every
1: breath, every other breath. I'll be quiet.
0: Feel how your body feels when you think that and how your mind feels when you think that. And then think about all the people on this whole planet that you don't know.
1: See what comes up in your mind as you imagine that. All the people I don't know. All over this planet. Waking up, falling asleep, doing all the other things that human beings do. Who wish, as we do, for peaceful, happy, contentment in their life. Not to be frightened, not to be in pain.
0: See what happens, I'll be quiet for a few minutes. What your mind does with uh, impulse lay all beings everywhere.
1: Be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. The feeling
0: of uh, compassion is what comes up in the mind when it encounters the thought or the actuality of a person who is in some need of aid, who's in pain
1: from something, in a difficulty. One's own mind
0: is at ease, not held captive by opinions and thoughts. The mind picks up at the awareness that someone's in difficulty and wishes them well. The mind thinks, how can I help? What can I do? It moves towards the individual. Not away from them in the mind, either in revulsion or in anger or in
1: revenge or may be well, may your pain be eased, may your pain pass, how can I help?
0: It's hard for the mind not to get startled by the awareness of pain and
1: difficulty.
0: We'll talk later on about how each of us is dealing with the news of the day these days in a way that doesn't Negate the impulse to care
1: for other people
0: in a way that understands that everything happens because of causes and finds ways to respond to pain.
1: Without making it personal,
0: I find that I, when I feel myself about to move to the category of empathic joy. I smile before I even think of people for whom I will wish for them. May your good fortune continue. I was surprised to find in my own life that there was Particular ways in which some people's good fortune evoked my own feelings of need. My own wishes that I had that good fortune or that my family had that good fortune. Was humbling for me to find that my in a response of joy, in response to the good fortune of friends of mine. Or sometimes jealousy. Not that I didn't wish them well, but I wanted it too, whatever it was that they were getting. It turned out to be much harder to actually genuinely feel, may your joy increase. May it continue. Maybe you have some situation in your life with a friend of yours or a relative of yours enjoying just the kind of good fortune in their life that you wish you had. I actually do not say... um, Automatic stock words, like, may your joy increase. If actually I'm in pain with envy and jealousy, it doesn't feel honest in me. What my mind will come around to eventually is, it's not the time for me to be having that. It's just not happening for me. What's happening for them? But what's ha- what is effective, my own mind, is to have compassion for myself about what I'm envious about, what I'm jealous of. So rather than wishing particularly for some other person, I say in my mind, I actually say to myself, I'm in pain. I'm jealous. I wish I had that. I'm embarrassed that I have this pain. I wish I were over this kind of envy. But once I've told myself five things that are the truth, I wish I wasn't having this, it's painful to have it. I wish it would go away, it's embarrassing to have it. Those are all true things. Whenever I say the truth, the same as saying it's like this. I really, really want to have that happen to me or my family, and I don't. And pain exists as a result of that.
1: I say to myself,
0: sweetheart, you're in pain, relax. Relax. Everything that arises passes away. This is going to change. May it change soon.
1: In the next minute that we sit together,
0: say to yourself, whatever wisdom statements make your mind balanced. everything passes. Everything has causes, everything is the legitimate fruit of karma, personal, near, distal, proximal. It's like this, things happen, and may I feel at ease about my wish for something else, may I feel content, may
1: I feel content, may I feel content.
0: Use the next minute or two to feel how your whole mind and body feel, and then open your eyes and look around at other people and wish them well. Everybody was thinking about themselves and thinking about you and wishing themselves well. Everybody wants to be content. Everybody wants to be at ease.
1: Everybody, just like me.
0: What I'm doing is, and you could do it as well, of course, is use this minute to look at everybody online and be wishing for them and yourself. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, which would include all of us. We'll all open our eyes and look at each other. I have to move my pages so I can look at everybody. You need to stand up for a minute. We've been sitting for an hour. You need to stand If you need to stand up and stretch or do something, stand up and stretch or do something. And then we'll sit back down right away. <clears throat> It's, it's very interesting for me to notice how when my mind is in a particularly um, buoyant mood, that's a good word, buoyant, I should use that a lot. Uh, when my mind is in a particularly buoyant mood, it remembers um, it, it, my memory <clears throat> gets much better. which That's a lovely thing, actually, for, especially uh, as one gets older, the memory is not... The, the same as it used to be. The um, near memory gets really shaky. Like, what did I eat for breakfast? Where did I put my car keys? But the things that I've done in my life or memorable moments, all of a sudden pop in from all over. As I said that, if you're sleepy and you need to stand up and wake yourself up, I had uh, uh, a teeny memory. It was a, it's a memory and it's of a teeny moment and it's a long, long time ago. And I haven't thought about it. And I don't know when the last time I thought about it, or if I ever thought about it. But long, long ago, 30 years, let's say, uh, I, I was teaching a retreat. And uh, there was a man who came on retreat who was standing all the time. Actually, maybe I was even sitting near the retreat and not even teaching yet. Very way back 1980, maybe, that's 40 years ago. okay. Uh, and there was one particular young man on that retreat who would come in and sit down and the sitting would start, and quite soon he'd be standing up. and the teachers had given the instruction that uh, you know we' be sitting for 45 minutes or however long, But the understanding was that if you were sleepy, one of the things you could do was you could stand up and it doesn't cause any kind of an upset in the room to stand up. Stand up and stand still. You don't fall asleep standing up and then sit back down again. And this one young man stood up quite soon after we were sitting and he stood the whole hour and then he did the walking practice and then he came back, sat down and soon stood up again. And I came to find out way later, maybe uh, maybe after, I, maybe I was just in teacher training at that point, that this young, youngish man was a college student who somebody had said this would be a good uh, retreat to go to. And uh, maybe he got course credit for it, so he went and stayed. Uh, and he had no idea that it was going to be in silence. And he didn't know that it was on top of that such long silence sitting day after day after day. And uh, I, I guess he was taking a course, so he had to take the course. He had to stand the whole time. And at the time, I don't know if I felt compassion for him. I don't know what I felt. It was sort of odd. I couldn't figure it out. And all of a sudden, it's 40 years later, and I'm thinking, I wonder what happened to him. I wonder if he stayed doing this kind of practice. I wonder if he followed up after that. I wonder if it did him good. I wonder who he was seeing as his personal check-in teacher. I wonder if he got good guidance. Uh, I hope he's well somewhere. And that that all happened in a microsecond, that that bunch of thoughts when, uh, when I uh, said, stretch if you're tired. And then I remembered out of the collective mind, so that's a long time ago, And I don't remember at the time having compassion for him. I remember being interested in what he was doing. I thought, oh, it's nice that I have this chance right now to think about him and wish him well. well." Wishing well for people picks up your mind. You feel better if you do it. That's one of the secrets of of the mind, that um, wishing well to other people, the principal beneficiary of the practice of blessing is the blesser. That's a nice way to say that. I made a list somewhere of um, uh, points. I want to make in a day long teaching. I think it's the last teaching that I did, which was two days long. said points I want to make, because as you know, I teach and I have notes about what I want to say, but then I say something else, nothing else and something else. So I do have a, usually a, a list that says points I want to make. And one of the points I want to always make is the principal blessing, beneficiary of, of the practice of blessing is the blesser. And from that, the coda, the um, the uh, addition to that, corollary is what you call it, the corollary to that is that it's not really, people often come and say, I can wish well to other people, I can wish well to everybody in the world, but not to myself because I have a bad feeling about this or that or that or that. And I feel really bad for them that someone has that much of a bad feeling about themselves. But I think to myself, I'm glad that that person is there and trying. And I tell them, it's really not possible for you to, to be not feeling, not being compassionate to yourself because the wish for compassion can't be made, it's coming through your mind. So you feel you have to be able to feel the other person's trouble to feel compassion for them. If you feel compassion for other people, you are yourself in a compassionate mode. You are a compassionate person who for different reasons, isn't able to take it in yourself at this moment. But don't worry about your ability to take it to be compassionate because you are. So I was going to tell you uh, about um, uh, oh, last night. This is I'm, I'm mostly going to tell you about my visit to uh, uh biagiri. But um, yesterday, someone told me about a movie called "Joy in Trouble." Joy in troubled times. Who saw the movie so far? Nobody. I I have to look on a few other pages. Anybody saw the movie? Joy and Troubled Times. Okay, so you along with me will probably be online today. I tried to locate it this morning and I uh, last night and I couldn't. And I saw it this morning, so somewhere online, I think it's on Apple TV or something, or somewhere online you can watch it. And it's a, uh, a documentary film made recently about. Uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, Desmond Tutu and uh, oh, there, you, you saw it. So you want to say thumbs up? Great. Wonderful. Thumbs up. Great. So I, I'm going to look for it today and see it. It's been in movie theaters, but I missed it. But he, I saw a clip of it. I know that that's online of a uh, trailer for it. And here are these two old men. Well, past 80, who are good friends, and they're having a conversation for a couple of days in some place, and they're being filmed for this documentary. And they are laughing and teasing each other and slapping each other. You know, they, they're kind of boyish in the way of teenage boys almost, you know, like uh, laughing with each other and joking and teasing each other. And it's so pleasant. And uh, that even in the little clip that I watched, uh, they don't expressly say it's a miracle that we're still alive and it's a miracle that we're still buoyant and it's a miracle that we still... But it, what the gist of the movie is, is they both have had very, very difficult lives. The, uh, uh, the Dalai Lama at one point, someone said, maybe Desmond Tutu says... Uh, um, You have had some difficult times in your life." He said, well, yes, my whole country and my whole people were taken away from me. But, and then he goes on and on and on. And the whole message is things can happen to you and you don't have to be held hostage to it from your whole life. That's the same as the Buddha said. The, The name of the film, Joy in Troubled Times. I thought to myself, these are certainly troubled times that we have now really troubled times and think about the levels of trouble in the world, all the way from the personal troubles in one's own body and your family's own bodies. And omission, joy, somebody, Judy Clarence is letting us know. It's called mission, joy, finding joy in trouble, troubled times. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and, uh, I was in the middle of a sentence, I have to catch myself. And Desmond Tutu, having come through South Africa and apartheid and everything that he lived through, and his wonderful teachings of um, trust and fidelity and well-being, and and they're good friends, and they are talking. And in the movie, even the 10-minute clip that I saw yesterday, It's clear that what they're saying is very big things happen to them. And here they are, and they're still managing to say in this, to act out in this moment, my mind is full of affection for you and respect for you and regard for you. And I was thinking of just using the word full, my my mind is full. We teach the Brahma Viharas, and as they are taught in the scripture, it says the mind is full of loving kindness. The mind is full of goodwill. Where well, the mind is full of compassion and open heartedness, mind is full of uh, empathic joy. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says it's such a good idea to take joy in other people's good fortune because there are so many billion other people. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, There are so many other people in the world. He said the chances of you feeling joy, if you took joy in other people's good fortune, are so much exponentially more possible than if you were waiting for your own personal satisfactory experience. It says the odds are much better if you took pleasure out of other people's good fortune, which is such an understatement. But I, th- I sometimes think I have uh, uh, kind of uh, empathic joy in advance. Sometimes I think to myself, you know, somebody right as I speak right now in Stanford or MIT or someplace, Georgia Tech, is figuring out how to vacuum clean pollutants out of the air or how to purify pollutants out of rivers or how to treat untreatable so far diseases. The, the world is full of young people with, with passion who are trying to fix up things. And uh, I hope I'm around uh, when that comes to pass. If it comes to pass, it does not mean that I'm uh uh not very concerned about the future of the planet or I don't concerned is the wrong word. The planet is in trouble, it's heating up and it's heating up dangerously. And I I do the the math on that. I won't be here when it heats up disastrously. But uh I have a grandbaby, great grandbaby, another one that's going to get born in November, and he's going to have to live a whole lifetime with a heated up planet, and uh, so I, I I I have feelings about that and all the other babies that are getting born today and tomorrow and the next day. But I also have a feeling I don't know that that's going to happen. It's a you know, it doesn't look good for it not happening right now, but i don't know and since i don't know i can do the best i can to not add any suffering to an already suffering world and not confuse my mind into not seeing the strawberries in my world doesn't mean that doing nothing and pretending that it's all fine not all fine i have to contribute to this campaign and contribute to that i don't have to i choose to Contribute to this and contribute to that and teach Dharma and do this and do that because that's what I can do. But I can't single-handedly change the world. But I can also work on my own mind so that it stays clear enough to keep hope alive in it. What if I really thought it was a totally lost cause? Now, What if everybody thought that? That would be a terrible thing. There would be nobody in all those labs trying to figure it out. And no preachers in any kind of churches and mosques and synagogues in the world saying peace on earth, goodwill to everybody else. We need voices for peace and teachers who are teaching peace. And the idea of a mind that's free enough not to be completely enveloped. You know what I thought about this morning um, when I was thinking about some of the lines used to describe Brahma Bihara as the mind is totally full of uh, goodwill, or completely filled with compassion, or completely filled with joy. So that's three completelys, you know, in, in the one mind. But I think it's completely filled with equanimity that comes because it's completely filled with wisdom is how it works. That the equanimity maintains the wisdom and maintains the wisdom so it doesn't get knocked over, doesn't remember. The wisdom is, the fundamental wisdom, is that that, uh, everything is temporal, everything is changing, and then everything is interrelated. Things happen because of a cause. The world is in the kind of shape that it's in because of things that people have done. Things that human beings have done. And they could change what they're doing, and the future could change. They don't have to wait for a long time. If I'm just thinking that um, it was an odd thought that came in my mind. How many of you have read Childhood's End by Arthur Clarke? Everybody read that. Arthur Clarke, who wrote 2000, 2000, 2000 Novel. No, no. Arthur Clark. What was the name of the book that he wrote? Uh, Arthur Clark. Uh, da, 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 da. Anyway. Um, somebody knows. That's it. 2001. <laughs> I thought 2001. Thank you, Jamal. I thought 2001. But I thought, no, that was the year of the Twin Towers. But 2001 was also... The year that Arthur Clarke wrote, um, published a space odyssey. Why um, was going to you about Arthur Clarke. Oh, because he also wrote another book called I don't remember what that one. Maybe Childhood's End, and that and it's a book about I think it is Childhood's End. It's a book about on one morning everybody on Earth wakes up. And there's a a big uh, spacecraft over Moscow and Paris and Washington and London and every major, seven major cities in the world is a spacecraft. Spacecrafts are big, huge spacecrafts. And they're not doing anything. They're just sitting up there and they don't let on what they're doing. And of course, all the countries are immediately amazed because uh oh and they're all there and i don't even remember the end of the book but i remember that the first move they make is they start to talk with each other here like what are we going to do we have a common enemy the whole world is now either menaced or not menaced by these spacecrafts all around mm-hmm. and so we'll have to collaborate and i th- i just thought of it this morning because i think always may- what is going to be the spacecraft i thought that Covid was going to be the spacecraft that got everybody to say, you know, wow, we are seriously in trouble. Let's forget about all these territorial boundaries and all the other things we fight about and ideologies and philosophies. Let's just worry about keeping human beings alive and keeping a planet alive. I thought it was going to be an equivalent of a spacecraft, but it doesn't seem to have happened yet that way. All right, so I have to get back to where I was going (laughs) to, where I was going to, where I was going to continue. Let's go back to the story Uh, of my trip to uh, Amarabhaya I went up there to see... uh, Ajahn Sumedho, I hadn't seen him in a number of years and I knew he was there and I went with my three friends. We had permission, we called up and made an arrangement to come. And I knew because I I knew that Ajahn Sumedho, who is two years older than I am, uh, uh, I know that he lives in England now. He's retired from actively working and teaching all over the world. And I knew that he had come uh, to uh, to the West Coast because he came to Se- Seattle to visit his elder sister. He's 88, and his elder sister was four years older, and she died a week ago. And so he came to be with her for a week before she died. And then he came down to visit and stay with the monks at Avayagiri. I, I knew, just because I knew through the Dharma network, that I, I know how old he is. I've met him on different occasions. And uh, i want to tell you the story right away of one important conversation that we had. Uh, I knew that his uh, hearing was not so good anymore and that his seeing was compromised and that his health was compromised so that... He needed, needs to use a cane and to hold on to somebody. And I'm happy to tell you that his mind is not at all compromised. His mind is wonderful. And that was a very very lovely discovery. It could have been otherwise, but it wasn't. Anyway, we all went to... Uh, we, went, we My friends and I, we went to a Bayagiri, and at the appointed time we went into the meeting room, and there were Oh, 10 monks and uh, probably uh, some people who live there and work there and some novices and 15, perhaps, visitors. And um, Ajahn Sumedho spoke for a while and then some of us asked questions and had conversation with him back and forth. And the whole thing was very uplifting for me because um he talked about he responded to people's questions and uh always in a lovely and clear and wonderful way. And um one of the questions, what led to this? Oh, someone said to him, um, I know that you came uh you came to the West because uh because your sister was dying and that she died. And I want to offer you my condolences. And he said, thank you very much. And uh, the questioner asked some questions like, what What was the most important thing you remember about your sister? So, and, he, and he said some sweet things about she was my older sister. And just really lovely things about her. And then he said, you know, there is such a thing as grief. He said... Uh, I wanna speak to that because sometimes there's there's a notion that if your uh, wisdom is enough and if your mind training is enough that you wouldn't experience grief. And he said, "That's, that's not so. He said, when I was with my sister, I knew she was dying. I went there because she was dying and i was with her for a week and we could speak a little bit and then she couldn't and then she died and she said he said i uh oh by the way that will take a- us <laughs> that Put that back, Carlita, I'll remember where I was. Oh, no, Jeff just reminded me, so maybe I I saw that. Anyway, Jeff, put that back, because it's an important thing for people to write. It wasn't you. It was you. It was you. Okay. Jeff is just telling us where you can listen to the talks of Ajahn Sumedho, and that's too important for me not to tell you, so we'll come back to that. Okay. Okay. Um, He said, and then she died. And he said, and I had tremendous grief because the experience of somebody that you love is really gone, gone. And you feel it. And he didn't say specifically, and then you integrated, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously you do. But really making it clear that no matter how much you understand about the the emptiness of all things, and the fact that everything, because it's empty, arises and empty of enduring substance arises and then passes away. He didn't say any of that, and clearly here he is a week later, and he's talking about his sister affectionately, and he said, but there's such a thing as grief. That's what human beings feel when something that they love, someone that they love, dies. And I like that so much, not the idea that somehow, if you somehow understand this arising and passing, that we are, after all, human beings. It's in the category of someone asking the Dalai Lama. I also had the good fortune to be in Irvine, California, in uh, 1987 or 89, the year that it was that the Dalai Lama got the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, nobody knew that that was gonna happen while we were there. And he gave talks several nights in the Irvine Auditorium, huge numbers of people there. And on uh, uh, uh one morning we, uh, Woke up to the news that the uh, um, Nobel Prizes had been announced and Dalai Lama had gotten one. So it was really a special thing to hear him talk. And that night, I was uh, in that auditorium and he's giving a talk, and people were coming up to a microphone 2,000 people in the auditorium coming up to a microphone to ask him one by one questions. And uh, the most uh, enduring in my mind memory. And he really is sitting alone by himself on this big stage on a big comfortable chair. And one by one, people are coming up and talking to him one on one. And someone came up and said, um, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. And you can see the whole, you know, 2000 people startled said, of course. He said, something happens. It isn't what you wanted. Anger arises. Ah. I didn't do it well. He had, <laughs> but it's like that. But he has another kind of a laugh that he laughs. That's very well. Ah. He said, of course. Ah. And then he pauses for a minute. And he said, but it doesn't have to be a problem. Something happens. You don't like it. Anger arises. Ah. But. It doesn't need to be a problem. Anger arises, it's not what you wanted. You do something, you fix what you can, you do what you can. It doesn't need to be a problem, <laughs> again. And everybody is laughing both at the sort of audacity of this person to ask the that day Nobel Prize Peace Prize recipient if he ever got angry, and he said, yes, I do. Uh, and. Uh, that he laughed about it. And he said, of course, it happens. So anger happens, fear happens, grief happens. They're all things that happen to human beings with neurology. And then when I think about it, the the, the, the important sentence to come after that, which I, I'm saying today, which I didn't use to say all these years that I've talked about, is that I think it's the... Years and years of trained mind, training the mind, habituating the mind to equanimity. habituating the mind to equanimity. The Dalai Lama by all accounts gets up every morning at three o'clock and in the morning and does a several hour prayer service before he starts his day. That is years of training the mind not to be blah, But to have enough equanimity in it to be able to be a shock absorber, something happens, you feel, ah, and you respond appropriately. Respond appropriately. It was clear that when he he went on to say, you know, something happens if it isn't what you want, it's not supposed to happen. He was also, besides being the Dalai Lama, he was also the head of state at that point. So he had to be making decisions and what to do, and he had he had people who were working for him as a country when he was head of state. Somebody does something wrong, you say, you have to fix that. That wasn't right. It's not like anything goes. It says you fix it up, and then you're all right. But the initial thing is, of course, then you decide what has to be done, and you tell it, and it gets done. And I felt the same about Ajahn Samedo. He said, grief arises. And I'm thinking that he's sitting up there and it's a week ago and the grief is not filling up his mind. Then he's enjoying, he's laughing. He was, um, uh, playful with, uh, some of the, uh, the people asking questions. He was very dear. Actually, there was one woman who came with her seven year old son and, uh, when Ajahn Pasano asked if anybody else has a question, he had people were asking questions. The son wanted to ask a question. He, uh, and this little boy asked, uh, do you believe in aliens? So everybody else laughed. I mean, here are all these people, a venerable monk, and do you believe in aliens? And he said, I don't know. He said, I've never met one. And then he said, it's like people like to ask me, what happens when you die? And we we're all waiting to know because there are a lot of views about and, and he said, I don't know. He said, I haven't died yet, uh, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, that I don't know because I haven't died yet. There's a lot of opinions, views and opinions around about what happens and a lot of doctrinal discussions about what happens and how it works and how it doesn't work. But they are all views and opinions. Who knows? And he was quoting um, uh, Sansanim, who was the Zen master of uh, the uh, Providence Zen Center oh, 30 years ago and had come over from um, it's a wonderful story for you to know anyway. Uh, Sun Sunim was a Korean acknowledged teacher, Dharma teacher in Korea, and he came to the United States and somehow ended up in um, Providence and didn't have a job. So he got a job in a laundromat uh, near What's, what's the, I guess it's Brown that's in Providence, the big university in Providence. I think it's Brown is in Providence. And so he's working in the laundromat and a lot of students were coming to the laundromat and they'd ask him, they'd ask him a lot of questions. And uh, he seemed to be so much of a sage after a while that they set him up in a house in Providence and he, he then carried on as the head of the Providence Zen Center. Until he died a lot of years later, it's a wonderful story. The author, Stephen Mitchell, was one of the students at the Providence Zen Center for some years. It's also interesting about how everything happens because something else happens and the karma of things. This one was there and that one was there. It's interesting to me that, that uh, I was there on that morning when uh, the uh, Dalai Lama said, of course, things don't go the way you want. Anger arises, but it doesn't have to be a problem. And then I was there. I was so happy to have been there to hear Ajahn Sameda say, grief is a real thing. It happens. You don't decide to be grief-stricken. It happens. You don't decide to be hysterical either. You don't decide to be terrified. And you can't meditate yourself out of terror. Those are things that happen to animals when they feel jeopardized. One of the reasons that I was particularly struck by thinking all these last few days about all those teachings about, uh, Masantin particularly said, only keep don't know mind, say, I don't know. And here was uh, Ajahn Sumedho saying, I don't know, I didn't die yet, I don't know how that is. to to have a, I don't know, dance about things. is another way of saying, by not clinging to fixed views, I wonder if I sent Carlita, my new, the newest um, of the matter the newest um, revisionist vision, revisionist version, of uh the Meta sutta which i did i send it you saw it we had it do you see it carlita is it there
1: let me locate that again
0: okay um, because i thought i feel all of a sudden very good about having written it uh because i, I was a little bit um hesitant i mean change of sutta but then i think you know There are so many versions of translations of the sutta and who knows who fixed what and who put in what word that wasn't there before. And as I've been teaching the metta-sutta over and over, there were lines that didn't sit well with me. I didn't like saying, um, I didn't like saying, uh, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child. Because I wanted to say, just as a parent, uh, I think that's 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 good enough. I think other people than parents would give their lives and sometimes do to protect children who aren't theirs. Ah uh, that suddenly makes me think about. Some of the dreadful news uh, we've had in the last few years about the last few weeks about law enforcement and law enforcement being in a position where they're having to defend themselves for not having been sufficiently able to take care of those 19 children. And I think uh, this is just my view, and I could be wrong, but I think everybody is... Um, Barking up the wrong tree. I, I think the, the problem is not the training of the police officers, the problems are the guns. Wouldn't happen if we didn't have guns. It's not about who. And the, uh, I read with tremendous dismay the views that we need to fortify schools. When would we ever need to fortify schools? What is that about? You know, the, People people have been going to school forever and trusting that the adults in the community will take care of them. But the adults in the community may try, but if the community is armed and some of the community is not mentally well, disasters happen. And so I really am very dismayed about how come the, the... Debate seems to be shifting to more for arming the schools, not disarming people. But I don't know. Maybe that's enough. Talk. Well, I, I don't know if I talked about all the... I want to make one more point, and then I'm going to ask you to talk to me about what are you thinking about. So I told I told you about my not clinging to fixed views and we talked about talked about Sumato. Might be I might be wrong. I really came away this morning. This occurred to me. I've been thinking recently. Many of you know, because you've known me long enough, um, and I've been talking about this recently, that uh, one of the things that is true about me is I have a very reactive nervous system. I, I startle easily. And it manifests by often thinking catastrophic thoughts about things that are not clearly catastrophes. I, even thinking catastrophic thoughts when they turn out to be catastrophes doesn't do you any good. But, but um, that I, interp- I misinterpret information. When uh, my husband and I used to travel quite a lot and if we were in some foreign city and I'd make up with him, okay, I want to look in this shop and then I'm going to look in this shop. Why don't we meet in a half hour in front of the restaurant across the street, something like that. Okay. He goes off and I go off and I come on time to where he's supposed to meet me. And it gets to be two minutes before the time that we're going to meet and he's not there yet. I think, where is he? Now, even this is in advance of him not showing up even. He's not there yet, even early. And I think, uh uh-oh, what if he doesn't show up? What would that mean? Then it gets to be the time that he was supposed to show up, and he's not there. And I think, uh uh-oh, where is he? What could have happened to him? Ah, he's an old man. Maybe he was too hot or it was too cold. Maybe he fainted. Maybe he he got... uh, mugged and dragged into an alley, maybe something bad happened, maybe he's he's an old man, maybe he got confused and he couldn't find the store, and then a minute later he rolls around the corner and comes back. But in the meantime, I've really terrified myself with all the possibilities. I see that Lisa's is <laughs> How many people get that story? So how many people, go have gone to pick up their child at the end of a day that they went on a ski bus. Uh, they You brought them to a certain shopping center mall at five in the morning and they all got on a ski bus and went up to Tahoe. And now it's nine o'clock at night and it's quarter to nine but the bus is coming home at nine and you come there and you gather with all the other parents and the bus isn't there yet and you're waiting and waiting. It's getting nearer to 9 o'clock and the bus isn't there yet and it starts to rain. So then, if you're a person like myself in those days, you think to yourself, ah, if it's raining here, then it means it's snowing in the Sierra and the bus is late. Therefore, it means it's in the ravine. It has slipped on the, bu- on the ice or the snow and it's a terrible thing has happened. And you get really frightened because you frighten yourself with your thoughts. Anybody has that kind of mind that does that? Yeah, yeah, look how many people. So over the years, I've thought about, and and if it's after nine now, somebody in the group will say, you know, uh, it's raining. Why don't we step into this uh, uh, diner here and just get a cup of coffee until the bus arrives. And if you're a person like myself, you think to how could this person be having a cup of coffee when their child is truly imperiled or somewhere or in a ravine or uh heartless parents? How could I possibly go in and be drinking coffee while my child's life is I mean not joking about it, but I mean it's a terrible thing. And then the bus arrives. And I could have been thinking Oh, I, because I would say to somebody, "Uh, are you worried about the bus being late? They say, no, no, of course the bus is late. It's raining, it's snowing in the Sierra. So the driver is driving very carefully. Now that makes as much sense as it's in a ravine. It's just that their mind turns that way and mine turns to catastrophe. Who knows why? My parents were not catastrophic thinkers. I don't know why. It's just what I got on all kinds of things. I have vestiges of it now, but I'm sorry to say for those people who thought otherwise, my mind doesn't think that ever anymore. As a matter of fact, I test myself. I go to the airport sometime and I'm doing something in the airport and they say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, may I have your attention, please? And I think, uh uh-oh. Then what they always say is, please keep your luggage right close to you and be sure that nobody tampers with it. They don't say anything about we've just had a crash or we're under fire or anything. It's the same It's the same recorded announcement about the luggage every time. But when I say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? And, ah. and I think to myself, nah, don't go there. It's too tiresome. And really, it's more than the recorded announcement. I now catch my mind, something happens on the phone, somebody says this or that or the other, And I think it could be terrible. And I think, yes, it could be, but it could not be. And it's as if some uh, card player has just displayed a magician where they display cards and they say, pick a card, any card. And one of the cards is, this is a catastrophe. And my previous mind would always grab for the catastrophe card. But now I see there are other possibilities. Oh I am sorry about that. Is it supposed to be sending things to anyway it's not that's not a catastrophe either. Uh, the catastrophe card and and I honestly sometimes see that and I see the other stuff as well. There, there, there was another image that I used to use for many years and if you don't know it, I'll tell it now because I always knew that my mind has the possibility of, of um, thinking uh, just about my local world and my people and my things. You know, how sometimes you watch a football game in a, in a sports bar, you'd be watching a game here, so-and-so and the bartender, it's not that I hang around in bars that much, but I know about the TVs where they can push a button and you see, uh, what you're seeing on this big screen goes in a small screen. And on the big screen then goes the, uh, Alabama USC game or something. So you can see what another game is playing, or you can see Navy Army game. You can, by the, by the click of a remote, I can be watching this local story, Sylvia Face's Life. Or I could be looking at the whole world of people waking up and going to sleep and planting and and harvesting and uh, getting born and dying and look out there and say, wow, it's amazing to be alive. I I have that possibility. So do you. We could think about our local stuff or we could think about the whole world. It's amazing what's going on. And then we mostly think about our little piece of the world and worry about it. And I have to think about my piece of the world. Both of those calls <laughs> were from my family. I'm happy to tell you that I didn't even think that anything was the matter with them. I just thought, why, why are they calling me on a Wednesday morning? They probably forgot that I teach on Wednesday morning. But I'm happy to say I didn't have a bad thought about that. Uh I want to say that I think that what I saw in Ajahn uh, Sumedho, and the other people that I talked about, the Dalai Lama and all that, is that you can have a mind that's so habituated to a larger view that it doesn't get caught in anything else. The thing is to not be caught, not be held captive by any particular story or any particular habit or any particular view. The end of the Metta Sutta. Carlita, did you find it? Would you read us the last paragraph by not clinging?
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to.
0: This is said, start from, this is said to be the sublime abiding.
1: Yes. And you wanted the last part. This is the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one having clarity of vision not confused by sense desires, is not born again into suffering.
0: Thank you very much. By not clinging to fixed views, it's this way that uh, there the the Buddha is saying what Santanim said about uh, only keep don't know mind that what um, the Dalai Lama said about you know Fear arises, anger arises. It doesn't last. Ajahn Sumedha say grief arises. It's okay. It's the response of the body to the moment. Uh, there it is, it's the end of the metta sutta. So the other, the last thing to say is, there was a, a man who's, who's dead now. His name was Punja, and he was an Advaita teacher in uh, Lucknow in India. And in the 1991 or 92, gosh, it's a long time ago, uh, I went with my husband and a number of other people and James Barras to Lucknow in India to have audiences with Sri Punja. And uh, Advaita is not the same exact as Buddha Dharma, but, he was a renowned sage and all of our friends were going to India and meeting with him and being exalted by his teachings. And we went and the the, the most clear evidence of he could feel and then not be held captive is one day, my friend James Barris, who's probably many of you, who, all of you may know, who's a wonderful Dharma teacher and has been my colleague for as long as I've been teaching, well, who was on that trip, played a tape. Gosh, this is so long ago I remember. It was a cassette tape of a small boy who was chanting some sutta from the time of the Buddha. And the point was that this, this boy was uh, some kind of a wunderkind uh, that as a, as a young boy, suddenly started with no previous experience. So who knows how this could happen? Began chanting this ancient scripture. And uh, so people came to hear him or see him or film him because it was a phenomenon. And so James put on the tape. He said to Sri Punja, I want to play this for you. And he put it on the tape deck and he started playing. And Punja broke into his sobbing, crying. And so we were all taken aback. You don't go to uh, a sitting with a you know a venerable teacher and cause them to cry. I'm sure that James felt a little bit taken aback. He didn't mean to call him, to, cause him to cry, but he seemed so overwhelmed with it. And he he leaned forward and he was crying for I don't know thirty seconds. And we all looked at each other. What should we do? The teacher is crying. And then he sat up. He looked around and he said to the person sitting right behind me, the end of a conversation from the day before, he said, so Ed, did you manage to get your tickets to Bogaya at the train station? It's like he finished with that, put it down, and here he was with yesterday's train station. And so a feeling went through him. He felt the feeling and then he was finished with it. And yet we so much get caught in stuff, and we do it over and over and over and over. Anyway, just this morning, I wrote it here on the bottom, mentioned about Sri Punja, so I did. Anyway, I thought I'd be finished way earlier, but I I really feel myself quite exalted in my determination that this is the right practice for me to be doing for the rest of my life. And so I feel a little bit like I want to be that messenger for you. And we have 15 minutes for people to say something or ask
1: something. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.